Welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by my friend John Presnell for another discussion of the 70s movies. We are going through a strange political situation now and it's worth seeing what the best directors that are still working did to reflect on the malaise, on the anomie, on the conflicts of an individualized society where political confusion and lack of political leadership lead people to experience something like chaos, something that's not the orderly way of the middle-class American life. And so today we're talking about Taxi Driver, which is perhaps the most famous movie of this sort of 70s downer story. Great director, great cast, four Oscar nominations, a lot of prestige, the movie is now a classic, but at the same time it's a reflection on what drives Americans crazy. Why is it so hard to be American? Why do people take it so hard when the country is going bad? John, I started paying attention to this movie again because of you. It was something you noticed last year during the crazy things that were happening in Charlottesville. There's a guy who was a perfect stand-in for Travis Bickle. And of course, most of these insane people don't give interviews. But we suspect that somebody like the Las Vegas shooter or somebody like the Parkland shooter in the Florida school, that they're Travis Bickles. I would agree. You'd think that people would pay more attention to what's happening with the politics and what's happening with these kinds of people that this is happening. But you could also understand why people don't want to look at it because it's incredibly scary stuff. Because it just happens. Somebody just pops up. And why? Well, here Scorsese and astounding script by Paul Schrader give us this focused look on one guy going crazy. Travis Bickle, played by Robert De Niro, who had just won an Oscar before and was nominated again for this picture. So, in our conversations about these movies, we notice that it splits into two halves. In the first half, in his strange, somewhat comical ways, Travis Bickle tries to live on a normal American life. And in the second half, when this fails, he takes his vengeance. So, first of all, take us through the plot. Sure. So we have 1976 film filmed in New York at its seediest, at its scuzziest, on the way to bankruptcy, if not already there. We have all the crime, the hookers, the pimps, the drugs. We're also in the middle of a primary for the presidency coming up here in New York City. And the film is told largely, insofar as that's possible to do on film, from his subjective perspective. We have a voiceover as he's writing in his diary. Travis is a Vietnam vet. He was in the Marines, honorably discharged, he tells us, and he suffers from insomnia. He figures if I'm just going to wander around New York City all night, I might as well get paid. And so he goes and applies to become a taxi driver and he drives all night. And we continue to hear his voiceover and we see the scenes of New York and his opinion about it is that it's just a hellhole. He hopes that it just can all be washed away. He's isolated. He lives alone with no friends, no family. And one day he happens to be walking down the street and he captures the sight of a young woman, Betsy, played by Sybil Shepherd. And this puts him in the mind that maybe he might want to ask her out on a date. Here's his attempt to perhaps achieve some kind of normal life. Otherwise, he's been spending his time taxi driving and also attending porno movies. And he lives in this little solitary apartment with nothing in it other than a cot. And it's very dingy and dirty and grimy. So he goes out with Betsy, but that fails because on their first date, he takes her to a porno movie, not knowing that this somehow defies conventions of first dates. 
across the street from the theater at the porno theater is uh, Clint Eastwood's movie, The Iger Sanction. So surely he could have taken her to something a little bit more respectable. But he doesn't seem to be aware of this. So obviously this budding romance falls apart. The failure of the romance with Betsy is when we move to the second half of the movie. Betsy is a campaign worker for one of the candidates, uh, Senator Charles Palantine, who's seeking the nomination in the New York upcoming primary for president. Travis no longer thinks or wishes to find some normality, and he has now a new plan, which he calls True Force, All the King's Men, through his voiceover. He begins rigorous training and discipline. He gives up drinking, he gives up drugs, and he goes and buys guns. And his plan turns out to be to assassinate Charles Palantine. This is a mirror of the 72 real-life presidential primary where a man named Arthur Bremer attempted to assassinate George Wallace, who was seeking the Democratic nomination that year. Bremer wrote a diary and was later convicted and sentenced. But we also see there's a second story going on. There's another woman or girl who comes into her life named Iris, and she's a prostitute. She's 12 years old, pretty much held captive by a pimp named Sport or Matthew, played by Harvey Keitel. And over time, Travis becomes more involved with that story, and he gets it in his mind. He wishes to meet Iris and that maybe he can save her from her fate. Travis fails in his attempt to kill the presidential candidate, and so he decides he's going to go and rescue Iris, not by giving her money, which was the original plan, but just to go into the brothel and kill everyone there, including even himself. And so we end with this incredibly violent, bloody scene, and Travis runs out of bullets, which, of course, prevents him from killing himself. And then with the ironic twist... The movie jumps ahead in its closing scenes. Travis has survived, even though he was shot. And rather than being prosecuted for murder, he is seen in the press as a great hero who saved the young Iris. We hear a letter from her parents back in Pittsburgh thanking Travis for saving him. We see newspaper clippings that Travis has posted to his wall talking about him as a great hero. He's back driving taxis again. And the final scene, lo and behold, here's Betsy, the girl who had rejected him earlier. Betsy now wishes to talk to him, but Travis just takes her to her destination, and he drives off. Yeah, so Travis Bickle starts off as a stranger to New York. He's from somewhere in the Midwest, mm -hmm. writes letters now and then to his parents, telling them as little as possible about himself, outright lying that he's living mm -hmm. the normal middle-class life, and indeed that he's even an honorable man. Now he's not in the army anymore, but he's in the secret service. That's right. There's a noble calling. There's something to speak to his love of honor. But the way his love of honor manifests is primarily an attempt to replicate the middle class life. Get yourself a job, in this case, taxi driver. Get yourself a girl, take her out to a diner and a movie for a date. That's what mm -hmm. he tries to do, and he's hopelessly bad at it. It's hard not to feel sorry seeing how inept he is, how little he understands people, and how little they understand him, and that he's never going to get along with anybody. But on the other hand, it gradually becomes obvious that this guy really is insane. It's tough to be in New York in the 70s with all the misery of all kinds, but it's much tougher if you're also insane, if you're also poor, if you're also without family or job or any other advantage that might see you through, and of course an insomniac to boot. He lives by mm -hmm. night and it's tearing him apart. He takes out his self-loathing by doing taxi driving in the worst places at the worst times where he sees the worst of human nature. And there's something about Travis that is anti-erotic. Sure, he goes to porn theaters and he takes the girl out, but in the cabbie station, he asks the operator, 
to drive there because he's an insomniac, the guy tells him, just go to porn theaters. That's what they're there for. <laughs> and he says, yeah, I tried that. It doesn't work for me. And he also talks to one of the cabbies in one of his rare moments of trying to socialize. And that guy, a cabbie called Wizard, who's a loudmouth, he tells stories about his cab rides, like Travis tells us his stories in his diary. And that guy's stories are all these obvious fabrications about women changing their clothes in the middle of the night on a bridge and then making hot, hot love. Mm -hmm. But those fantasies are what we would call normal. Travis's fantasies that depend on pain, self-discipline, self-overcoming, and physical strength, every muscle must be tight, are the opposite of that. He is mm -hmm. anti-erotic. Yeah, even from the opening scene, we see how uncomfortable Travis is, and I think we can already see he is insane. He has this weird smile, and he makes odd remarks, such as, my conscience is clean, he says. He's shifty, and De Niro plays this very well. This ill-manneredness, he has no understanding of other people or how to engage with them. He doesn't understand conventions. And this totally isolates him and feeds on his own madness and continues to keep him mad. Yet from that perspective, when we look at the world through Travis's eyes, through the windshield of his taxi, we see that his assessment of what New York is like is true. We see this horrible, ugly place, this inferno, and it's just riddled with vice and with sin and with crime and violence and madness and all kinds of uh, danger is involved in this city here. His madness connected to his character and his inability to connect with anyone outside in the normal world gives him a perspective to see it. And this might be connected to his lack of eroticism. If he had a more ordinary erotic desire, he could be able to somehow intermingle within the world. And so this just keeps him separate. He's a spectator throughout. He cannot seem to take action. He tries to take action with Betsy, but it's completely wrong. And he doesn't understand what he needs to do to win someone like Betsy. He's impotent. He just looks upon the world and he sees a certain truth in it. But that truth that he sees, he doesn't want to be a part of. So he wishes to think he can maybe be a part of the phony or veneer life that, say, somebody like Betsy at the Palantine campaign has. But that's not going to work for him either. Yeah, you're right that if he was not unusually insightful about what's evil in America and what's driving the country to insanity, he wouldn't maybe end up so badly. Maybe there would be some escape for him. Maybe he would just drink himself into resignation, certainly mm -hmm. better than horrifying violence. And of course, from the point of view of society, maybe he would have just committed suicide. Then he's nobody's problem. Nobody cares about him anyway. And mm -hmm. he's very much aware of that. He calls himself God's lonely man. So he's right. somehow fated for misery. But in his misery, he learns that it's not just him that's crazy. The country is going crazy. Mm -hmm. As you pointed out, across the street from the porn theater, there's this uh, spy thriller from the 70s starring Clint Eastwood. <laughs> I recommend it. The Iger section is a fine movie yeah. and certainly yeah. beats porn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but why are they playing across from each other? What kind of New York City is that? It's going bankrupt, that's full of drugs and whores, and porn theaters in Times Square. You can still see the photos from the time, and of course sure. there are all these movies that serve more or less on purpose as documentaries, as cultural archaeology. They're scary. 
they show something scary about freedom in America. But from the middle class perspective of this proper young woman who is disgusted with him when she sees the porno theater, the problem is that, as it were, people are sinful. They just give in to their evil desires and that turns ugly, but what are you gonna do? It's freedom. What Travis reveals because of his anger as opposed to eroticism is that there's a lot of crime and violence involved. This is not just people going with whores. It's not just people drugging themselves. It's exploitation of children for sex. Yes. And all of a sudden, this guy is not just insane. He really has a point about how screwed up things have become and how much of a lie middle class respectability can be in certain situations. How does everybody else live in that city without noticing this? How do the rich and powerful live there without doing anything about it? This Senator Palantine, for whom Betsy works, proposes mandatory welfare. He's got the typical liberal Democrat solutions. And he blinds himself utterly to the ugly truth because it's never going to affect him, he thinks. He can get all the power he wants out of this city and never be responsible for any of the terrifying injustices that are committed there. They're not his problem. One night he ends up in Travis's taxi and he gives him the politician's talk. It's a democracy, America, so you have to tell taxi drivers that you have learned more from taxi drivers than limo drivers. But he makes the mistake of asking Travis, what's on your mind? What really bothers you? What's your hot-button issue? And Travis tells him, it's that this city has turned into hell. Somebody should do something about it. And the politician no longer wants to talk. He no longer wants to be fake friendly. He no longer wants to pretend that he's one of the people or at least acquainted with what life is like for other people. That's right. Social class barriers come down hard. And this helps make Travis feel even more helpless, but also more humiliated, angrier, more decided on violence. And of course, Betsy works for this Palantine guy. And when he fails to persuade the senator and this woman working for him, he begins to think that this world is closed off to him. That's right. He's a fairly crazy dude, but part of his insanity is trying to be middle class. And so in asking the girl out, he doesn't just put on the coat and comb his hair and behave respectable. He also tries to live out all the crazy hippie self-actualization verbiage of the 70s. He wants to act happy to be happy. He wants to be a take charge kind of guy who gets when the energy is right. You've got chemistry and he persuades her to go out on a date with him because he looks almost normal and maybe better than normal guys who are just bland and boring and neurotic and cowardly like the Al Brooks character in her volunteering campaign office. But, of course, then it turns out that he really is different and that she's not looking for that. And like everybody else, she feels no responsibility for Travis and she feels she shouldn't be taking any interest in him or acknowledge his existence once she's disgusted by him. And he realizes that that's what he is. He's an object of loathing. He is marginal in society. And nevertheless, these people are at some level hypocrites and maybe even exploiters. The movie shows us life at the campaign office. When Travis begins to court Betsy, he enters into the campaign office. He sees her on the street, and there's this wonderful slow-motion scene where she steps out of the crowd in this white dress, and he says, they cannot touch her. So he idealizes and makes her this perfection. And so now he has this image in his head that he can go and muster up the courage to go talk to her. 
Prior to him talking to her, we first meet Betsy talking to her colleague at the campaign. Albert Brooks, they're talking about some press release. You know, we need to talk about the senator's mandatory welfare. And she says, no, first push the man. You know, Senator Palantine is intelligent and charming. And Albert Brooks says, you forgot sexy. And she says, of course, sexy. But she likes this kind of play. And Albert Brooks tells her, you know, it sounds like you're just selling mouthwash. And she says, we are. What's the difference? So she's happy with this surface where nothing is particularly serious, and she seems to have a home there. But then when Travis enters and he tells her he wants to volunteer, but what he's really doing is he asks her out. And the way he persuades her is he tells her, you know, you look like a lonely person to me. I've been watching you. Of course, that already should send alarm bells to her. But it strikes her. This is something she hasn't heard. And maybe it touches on a certain sense where she does feel lonely. And so there's something intriguing about him. And so that's when they go and have a nice little coffee and pie at a cafe or diner. And she tells him after that he reminds her of the Chris Christopherson song, Pilgrim Chapter 33. Of course, he's never even heard of Chris Christopherson, let alone that song. But she quotes to him, he's a poet, he's a pusher, partly fact, partly fiction, a walking contradiction. And of course, this offends Travis. I'm no pusher, he says, even though he's pushing himself on her. And he's trying to push himself into this idea of the normal life. But of course, which we know just from looking at it, this is not going to work out for him. And of course, Betsy, once she realizes who Travis is, immediately is able to go back and be quite happy with the surface of things and the ordinary conventions without having to think about what's on the other side, what Travis is able to see. Yeah, that's true. For once, Travis almost is normal, friendly, engaging, trying too hard, but not without a certain charm, not without a certain handsomeness. You could see this one in a million shot at a normal life there. But it doesn't work, and instead it reveals something else. He is an idealist, and he has a sense of honor. His love mm-hmm. of this beautiful woman and his hatred of the politician he tries to assassinate both stem from the same thing. His insanity would be uninteresting were he not also idealistic. Mm-hmm. His own descent into madness just wouldn't matter if it didn't somehow go along with America's own descent into madness in the 70s. They stand in some sort of relation. It's not that he's the typical man of the 70s. It's that he takes to an extreme certain typical features. He does see that the girl is lonely. He does notice that the city is full of people who think they're chasing their desires, but in fact are living pretty miserable lives. It's just that he's not pretending that this is all right, that this is normal. Normalcy holds no attractions for him and sets no limits to his mind and to his actions, which is why he ends up so bad. Whereas the Albert Brooks character and Betsy can laugh about, of course, (laughs) we're just selling mouthwash. Everybody knows this is all the game we can all play and everything is fine. Travis's lecture to Senator Palantine in his taxi cab. He thinks that that's what politicians ought to be doing, which is actually trying to solve some of these problems and fix what's wrong. So his alienation and his connected to this idealism, he's able to see a certain truth that those who are actually within the world in the normal sense, they're unable to. And so they don't care that they're selling mouthwash. Who cares? Travis, his sense of honor, his sense of what ought to be, whether it's Betsy as being this purity, or uh, of course he takes her to the porno movie, uh, uh, or Palantine really wanting to be, we are the people. We see Travis, he goes to a couple Palantine rallies. Of course, the second one, he's going to attempt to kill him. And so he's listening to his speeches. We see Travis watching Palantine on a television talk show. And it's an interesting conversation. 
the interviewers asking Senator Palantine, how's the campaign going? And Palantine tells us, the people are rising to the demands I have made on them. The people are beginning to rule. And yet he's not making any demands on anyone. So even Palantine sees himself as somebody who can rule and who can make demands upon a people. And the inverse of that is that somehow his demands is what will allow the people to rule. And so there's some kind of delusion about American politics at this time, which is that on the one hand, you need somebody to make some demands, to take some leadership, to be in charge. This is needed at this chaotic time. And yet it's phrased in the sense, then the people will rule. And there's a paradox there. Travis is able to see this. They're selling mouthwash, but even the political rhetoric is confused and is not what it ought to be. Yeah, the typical ideas of American politics. Sure, I'm your leader, but on the other hand, I'm only leading you where you want to be led. <laughs> so I'm in charge, but you're really in charge and we're all in charge. And yeah. this is going to turn out well for all of us. I get the power, you get whatever it is that you want. His only idea is mandatory welfare, which is hilariously 70s. But this caricature of American politics is particularly shocking because look at New York in the 70s. This guy's a senator from hell and he's stalking sunshine. Mm -hmm. He's promising people a great future. It just has this surreal quality to it. You can't tell exactly, is he lying about all the suffering, the injustice, the evil? Mm -hmm. Or doesn't he even care? Maybe he doesn't even know this is real. Maybe he has developed this capacity, like other characters we see, to just ignore the ugly truth. And of course, for many people, it's perfectly understandable. What can we do? We're all just this private guy, that private gal. There's no power. There's nothing we can do. And maybe it's not even our responsibility. Mm -hmm. People like Travis who think it is their responsibility are crazy. But the yeah, politicians, supposedly, it is their responsibility. And when you see the city from Travis's point of view, when you see a sport, Matthew, and his enslavement of Iris into sex slavery, just lowest of the low, and you connect that with the politicians' demand for mandatory welfare, as if somehow providing for the pimp's wage will cease to make him a pimp, in effect. The only policy program we hear throughout, which is mandatory welfare, I guess that's the demand he's making on it. You must accept this welfare. Yet that somehow this will be what's going to solve the problem. And, and Travis just knows, no, what really needs to be done is just one of these days a rain is going to come and we'll wash all this crap away. And I think he even tells Palantine in his rant, somebody needs just to flush all this crap down the toilet. That solution, which of course is not really a solution either, but is truer to what the reality is and that what everybody else is oblivious to. Yeah, and it's also remarkably American as an idea. You have to get tough on crime. Sin is not just something to shake your head at, but it's somehow evil and it should be stopped. The arrogance of criminals and of violent people is intolerable. This is also a part of middle-class America. You could call it mm -hmm. the dark side, but it's also the source of justice. People who tell themselves that they'll get a bit of privilege, they'll get a bit of pride out of their corrupt lying politician winning out some meaningless election, they're strange, they're un-American. It's the people who get good and angry who are all American. The people who are shocked, not the people who are blasé, show you that they really identify with America. It's not just a game, it's not just jockeying for a bit more middle-class privilege. 
So Travis would be the type of person, his sense of outrage, if he hears a slogan like, we are the people, that's Palantine. He would say, hell yes, we are the people. We need to do something about this. And yet we learn earlier that, no, this is just some silly slogan. Is it we are the people or is it we are the people? And it's just whatever. You just stick it on the campaign poster. The identity of America and the responsibility of being American is a joke about campaign flyers and buttons and are you getting these things right and where should the stress go? And all this cheap political rhetoric that functions at the level of consumerism and idiotic badges of political identity. It's hilariously inadequate to the real suffering and trouble that Scorsese shows us unsparingly. And in New York, too, it's almost impossible to say there even is such a we. Travis is obviously the most extreme, radicalized, and insane manifestation of that. But the fact that he's able to, at least in part, intrigue Betsy by calling her lonely suggests that what you have is individuals living side by side in New York. You don't really have a we. Another one of Palantine's speeches, he says, just like Walt Whitman said from the song of myself, I was there, I saw, I suffered. Well, Palantine can turn that I into a we. We were there, we saw, we suffered. Whereas Whitman is there, in a way, maybe a more sane precursor to Travis Bickle. Palantine can take Whitman just as a great American poet in the pantheon and just translate it into more campaign sloganeering. Yet there's something about that I that is needed there to see through the reality because there is no we there. Yep, problems of this magnitude, the importance of the presidency and the crisis of the presidency, as we have seen at least since 2016, this is not that rare in America and its effects on the society to make people angry, helpless, even hateful. These things are as real today as they were in the 70s as they were long before that. They're just not noticed unless crazy stuff happens. There is something about middle-class life that encourages people to delude themselves and to hide away from the truth. And of course, when you see what happens to Travis Bickle, you begin to think, maybe you should be hiding from the truth. What if the (laughs) truth makes you a monster? Absolutely. Absolutely. Travis isn't just simply an I. He is complete isolation. The way in which he comes towards his plan, right, and you see it manifest itself finally in his dramatic performance in front of the mirror, you talking to me. The only way in which he's able to confirm some sense of purpose is looking at himself in the mirror. That's the height of insanity. And even as he's acting out, he looks behind himself. It's a wonderful scene, famous scene, of course. I don't see anyone else here. So that complete isolation is where he sees the problem. He fails to think he can maybe integrate with the outside world that he's only been looking on and he has an idealized version of. And so now comes that plan, pure force, and he's going to insert himself. And you're right. Given what it leads to, maybe we shouldn't be focusing, uh, you know, just on on what... Yeah, there's uh, a certain wisdom in not insisting too much on things you can't solve. They will make you go crazy. But at the same time, it's a problem when you ignore the bizarre, crazy people who might turn violent. A certain disgust, a lack of love and charity and fellowship exposes the defenseless majority to the shocking evil that people who go crazy might commit. This is not to say, of course, that either deserves the evil that comes, but it does come and it keeps happening. You can see why Scorsese wants to show the Democratic audience this is something you should be paying attention to. It's part of America, and it's not entirely deluded, and it's not really unexplainable. There's a lot to learn here. 
but of course there's also the personal story of Travis, not what he observes about a corrupt society where there's no real common good, but also his own personal misery. He's a guy who really shouldn't be in New York. Anything else might be better for him, even being alone in a cabin somewhere. <laughs> his mirror scene enacts all his isolation and also all his self-contempt and this desperate thing that comes out of his self-contempt, a desire to overcome himself, pushes him in this direction. Who's to blame for his misery, for the fact that he doesn't have the things that seem to allow other people to go on with life? Even criminals, even the scum of the earth get what they want. Not mm -hmm. Travis Bickle. Why not? Well, he will make a show of force. He will finally do something. He will be impotent no longer. You pointed out to me the crucial scene in the movie when Martin Scorsese himself as a passenger mm -hmm. puts in Travis's mind the idea of the gun as a phallic symbol, but more importantly of erotic betrayal or failure leading to violence and the notion that if you cannot really be normal, if you cannot be natural, you should be violent. Force yourself in a way that is unmistakable, unforgettable, that you could get infamy. This is the single most disturbing idea in the film, just like child sex slavery is the single most disturbing thing we see in the film. And they're in a very strange way connected in the plot. Even as Travis decides that Betsy is evil for rejecting him, that she's phony like everybody else, even as he decides that the senator must pay because somehow it's his fault that Betsy won't go with him and somehow it's his fault that the world is the way it is, even as all this insanity grows in Travis, he also decides he's got to save this little girl. He's going to kill everybody who is involved in her humiliation and dehumanization. The first half of the movie, towards the beginning, we encounter Iris. We don't know her, but she jumps into his cab and she's this little girl and says, get me out of here. And Travis looks in the mirror and he doesn't immediately take off, which allows time for her pimp sport to show up and just rip her out of the car. And the pimp throws a crinkled $20 bill on the passenger seat. He says, get out of here, cabbie. Don't worry about it. And this bill becomes something that stays with him. And later on, he sees her walking down the street. So something about her sticks with him. In the second half of the movie, when he develops his plan to assassinate Palantine, simultaneously, he's also going to take the action to rescue Iris. So one is going to be the gun. This will go after Palantine. There has to be that blood that will show that now he has entered in on the scene. Look at me. I'm here. And then at the same time, his plan is to rescue Iris. He's just going to give her a bunch of money, and then she can use that to escape. She wants to go off to a commune in Vermont. Travis doesn't care where she goes as long as she gets out of the enslavement there in New York. The plan to assassinate the president fails, and so the gun is going to be used towards Iris's oppressors. Yeah, and you end up with this ironic heroism of Travis Bickle. The press, respectable America now has to deal with him, and instead of trying to save him from his insanity, in gratitude for him actually saving a girl that nobody else would care about, Instead, they call him a hero and wrap it there. Everybody yeah. feels good about themselves. Evil has been somewhat destroyed, but this guy is left to wallow in his insanity. This is the only person, this little girl, who reached out to him. Nobody mm -hmm. else gives a damn about him, and maybe that's she right. only gives a damn because she's needy, but that's better than nothing. And he that's feels right. that he was impotent. She asked him to get her out of there, and he couldn't act. And there is that $20 bill to remind him of his humiliation. 
he just let that guy take the girl out and tell him to look the other way. He is moved by typically American opinions that she should be in school, living with her parents, yeah. and dating boys her age, and that's what she should be doing. And it's not hip to be involved in this horrifying sin and violence. And he's not a square for urging her to try to be a normal kid. And this is what he acts on. These are not just justifications. They are to some extent justifications for his anger. But they also mm -hmm. show why he gets angry at these things. When all these other characters you see as he drives by night are sort of all right with the horror. That was a really good point. Iris is the only person in the film Travis encounters who comes to him in need. He tries to insert himself into other people's lives, which is complete failure. And remember, his initial plan is not to kill all those pimps. When he first goes up to the Harvey Keitel pimp and says, hey, I want to meet with Iris, he wants to talk to her and begin to hatch his plan to get her out of there, not to have his way with her. Harvey Keitel, sport, calls him, hey, cowboy. He's wearing cowboy boots. She's been abducted, and he's the John Wayne who's going to come and take her out of there. And the way he wants to save it is not through violence, whereas the violence is going to be towards Palantine. I don't know if he thinks that somehow through that violence, something good can come out of it. But ultimately, that path fails. And so the attempt to use violence to save, or at least to make his mark in the public world, is now going to be connected to saving Iris from her particular plight. And yet that particular action is what makes him into a hero. After all, if he had killed Palantine, he would be a villain. Yeah, that's true. And as you pointed out, he turns from a cowboy into an Indian, <laughs> shaves his head and sports a mohawk, and <laughs> begins to show his insanity and look savage. <laughs> this is a savage, lawless place. He should act accordingly. He gets lucky that his insanity fumbles his assassination plot, which was also insane. That's part of the irony of the plot. Then he actually does one good thing, which he always intended to do. It's not that he doesn't know right from wrong. That's not what makes him insane. And uh, he actually gets it done, although again quite fumbled, and again fails to do something, let's say, to commit suicide. He's yep. out of bullets, and that's what spares his life and gives him a new opportunity, which we have no reason to believe is going to turn out better. But there it is, <laughs> there you see the yep. strange achievements and limits. The story does show that America is not as good as people think. But it also shows that Travis Bickle is not quite as bad as people think. Mm -hmm. They're not angels like he sees Betsy. And he's not the devil like people might think about him. They're somehow somewhat closer than would seem. Because there is an all-American problem that freedom in New York City ends up being hell. Nobody wanted that. That's not what people want. But nobody's doing anything about it either. There is a certain meeting ground between these good people and this bad person. It's maybe the strangest part of the plot suggests that him, who is damned, and thinks of himself that way at least, that he is the only one willing and able to save this girl. Everybody else would rather look away from sin and thus neglect the crime that happens. They'll say people have base desires and look away because it's disgusting and at the same time allow those people to do in that neglect all the violence they can. And of course this really happened throughout the 70s and 80s. Sure. It's not made up. For that reason, quite insightful about what even the, the limits of middle class America are. Yeah. 
you know, even the police, it's not entirely plausible that this would end with Travis as being touted as a hero because we see throughout that the cops are completely worthless. There's a scene right after Travis buys his guns and he's walking around with his gun. It's unregistered and he's in a convenience store run by a Puerto Rican guy. He's being held up and Travis is there and he just takes him out one shot. And all of a sudden, Travis is thinking, uh-oh, I'm in trouble here. And the guy says, don't worry about it, right? This is the third time this week. Just give me your gun. You take off. The cops aren't going to do a damn thing about this. That's that kind of failure, not only just to recognize the problem, but nobody's doing anything about it. Yep, that is the moment when Travis realizes that there's no connection between justice and law. He gives in to his own evil desire to kill. But at the same time, it's hard to say that he is more evil than others is just as violent as any other violent character and he's just as unjust as the constituted authorities who tolerate all this stuff. This convenience store owner who is exactly as savage and lawless as Travis himself and as the guy who tried to rob him and maybe murder him. He has hit upon a situation where human life doesn't really matter. It's not exactly human and it's not going to be life for long. It's a matter of chance. That's something apparently people can get used to, even in America, for all the exalted conception of themselves as progressive or patriotic we might see in these political campaigns that look like so much gloss and veneer on something that's really full of violence and injustice. Or if not the violence and injustice, you have Wizard, his speech to Travis. You know, when Travis begins to contemplate that he's going to do some bad stuff, He turns to Wizard, because Wizard is the wizard, I guess. And he seeks for some advice, and what does Wizard tell him? A man gets a job, say a taxi driver, and he becomes a taxi driver. That's who you are. There's nothing else. So just deal with it, Travis. Go out, get laid, get drunk. He admits it's not Bertrand Russell, but it's his philosophy, and there's some truth to that. But it's a resignation. Exactly. You are who you are. Wizard dominates by his gift of gab, this little group of cabbies. (laughs) But at the same time, you see what he says is, I don't own my cab. I've been working 13 years, 10 on the night shift. I don't own it. What do you get out of life? Nothing. And he says, maybe that's what I always wanted. I don't own a cab because I guess I never wanted to own a cab. If if life doesn't work out for you, it's your fault and it's something you should resign yourself to because there's nothing you can do. You cannot act. Mm -hmm. This is part of what teaches Travis to become a monster because it's better to do something horrifying than to live your life thinking that there's nothing you can ever do. That's right. Travis tells him that's the craziest thing he's ever heard. So Travis recognizes these ideas he's having are very dangerous and very scary. He says, I have bad thoughts. But if Betsy's world's not going to work, the political world's not going to work, the taxi driver, Travis doesn't just want to be a taxi driver. He needs some mission. And if it's going to be pure force, then... then It's the only source of dignity left there. That's the scary part. And you could see that his descent into the evils in New York and the evils in his own brains at some level is about maybe trying to find the limit, that things would go no further, that something could put a stop. The only thing there is this mission of protection, save an innocent girl. The only thing that can put limits to his madness. The cowboy way is not going to work out. So the, I guess the Indian raid, you know, and so it's going to be blood. I mean, it's a complete bloodbath. So bloody that the ratings required that Scorsese have to mute the colors at the ending scene. But this is what's required for him to take this action. And you wonder, 
Yep, that is unplanned, spontaneous madness, and in, in this ironic way, it leads to the only good thing that happens in the whole damn story. And that's part of what Scorsese is trying to say. The respectability of respectable people, if it cannot square with the injustices that other people suffer, isn't really going to lead to good things. It will provoke evil, either out of arrogance or out of desperation at powerlessness. Evil is going to come. It's only comfortable people who can live by slogans and their fake ideologies that ascribe blame. These are timely, unfortunately, lessons, but they're also revelations of some of the dark sides of American character that should be taken seriously because it still is the case in a world where we no longer have serious violence. We still love all the violence in our entertainments. Fewer murders every year, the more violence on screens. It is still part of our soul somehow, and we should learn about it. There's interesting cinematography in the movie. The movie's told from the ground level and from Travis's point of view, except there's these few striking parts, one at the beginning where he signs the contract to become a cabbie, one when he goes into Betsy's office and he tells her that she's lonely and that all the stuff on her desk doesn't matter, one when he's buying guns, and then the last, the scene after the bloodbath. And that's this overhead, almost bird's eye view, objective, looking down upon the whole scene here. Even if you take this objective view, what you see, whether it's in the respectable world, say in the campaign headquarters, or even in the signing a contract to become a taxi driver, or in the hotel room buying illegal guns, let alone the bloodbath at the end, is that you just have these individuals here. You know, I go back to this idea that there is no we. There's a veneer that we can all play the game, and maybe that keeps us from going insane as we talk about mouthwash, ha ha ha. But the other side of this is that there's no connection. That bird's eye view just shows that it's just individuals. You're right. These are all moments where you see a human space where there is an attempt and a failure to make a serious connection to establish some relationship that could alleviate loneliness and accidental acquaintance or encounter. But they are all failures and they all show Travis's points of contact with the world Mm -hmm. and how they fail to add up to anything human. Uh, This is not to say that loneliness or freedom gone crazy is always going to end there. Most of the time it will not. But when it does, finally, maybe people can pay attention and see that it took a getting there. And Mm -hmm. that's something that the whole society has to reckon with. Yeah, this is probably, unfortunately, part and parcel of of society, at least as portrayed here. Like you said, not everybody's going to be Travis. In fact, Travis is a true loner. On the one hand, he's exemplary, but on the other hand, he's a complete outlier by being this complete exaggeration. But it's there. Mandatory welfare surely is not going to alleviate this. So I think that kind of evil will just point itself through from time to time, and it will be bloody. And it's important to say that aside from whatever people think about art or innovation in movies, Scorsese wanted us to confront the evil to stop pretending it's not real or that we could wish it away with the right combination of policy ideas and good intentions. That's part of the self-appointed task of moral Mm -hmm. and political education. These are true facts about America that we don't want to confront and that's precisely why we should confront them. That's the reason to remember the movie and to bear what is fairly hard to watch and fairly shocking. 
I mean, as you said at the beginning, I guess one way that Travis could have been placed, he could have been institutionalized in an asylum, right? And then that would be one way, at least perhaps, that you could try to avoid this type of thing. And it's, of course, of note that it was around this period when all of those public asylums were all shut down. Different understanding of psychiatry and of therapy came about. To a certain extent, we're still in that world. Yes, um, that is true. It's a consequence of our liberal conception of individualism. Every man should choose to live as he pleases, more or less, and we abandon those who fall through the cracks. That's a massive social failure and still not been corrected. But I think the point of the movie, I suppose, even if there were social policy like that, that were enlightened somehow, it still won't make up for the shortcomings of the kind of society portrayed in the film. Yes, and it's worth for that reason to talk about it, and it's a great way to conclude our conversation. These directors are intelligent, these writers are observant, and they have important things to say and have the art required to attract our attention and to sustain it and to reward our reflections. John, again, I owe you a debt of gratitude both for showing up on the podcast and just for helping me orient myself thinking about these stories and where they stand to America. It's always a pleasure talking with you and let's do this again soon. Absolutely, Titus. Thanks for having me. I noticed we have been speaking about these 70s movies. I mean, there's more to it than that, but I wouldn't mind maybe exploring some other films from that era. We'll have to think about some things. Yes, that's certainly a, a useful thing to do. It's the one decade nobody has the guts to be nostalgic about, and of course, yeah. for good reasons. And there is, however, much to discover there. Although there is that weird nostalgia of when New York was gritty for folks who never had to live through it. That's okay. true. And presumably there is the nostalgia for 70s artists and their freedoms and sure. their originality, much less for their social responsibility and their notion of their duties to their audience and to the American people to point out what's yeah. going on. That's a problem. Yes. Well, but anyway, thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed this conversation very much. I'm glad. We'll figure out some more 70s movies and we'll do this again. Okay, Titus. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>